Our Bible reading this morning is taken from the New Testament, from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read the Word of God together. We're reading, of course, from the authorized version, and we would like you to not only follow the words on the screen as they come up, so you can see them as well as hear them, but if you have your own copy of the Bible, then you could turn to that place and you could follow the reading. You might even want to underline the verse if it's not already underlined uh, that I'm going to preach on this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to read the first 14 verses. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And has raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are uncircumcision, by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 14. And we pray that the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning... Is taken from Ephesians chapter 2 and in the verse 10. It reads as follows, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. And my theme today is entitled, Discovering the Joy of God's Workmanship. Ephesians 2 and 10, that came to me last Sunday evening, is a powerful, positive statement of the Holy Scripture. I want you to remember that Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 go together. And they form, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, a very composite statement. The Apostle Paul, remember, is dealing with the great subject of God's salvation, how to be saved. And he's teaching us that God's salvation is entirely of God's grace. It is all of God. 
and it is all of grace from start to finish. Therefore, any boasting of self, any boasting of our good works is absolutely excluded. The true child of God cannot and will not and does not boast even in his or her faith. True saving faith is a gift of God. It's implanted in the soul by the Holy Spirit and regeneration. And therefore, faith is the instrument or the channel through which we become the recipients of God's salvation. Paul says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that, the word that's a demonstrative, and that relating to faith, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, faith is just the instrumental cause. It's the channel through which we become the recipients of God's salvation. It's not a determining cause. Now, that's important that you grasp that. And here's Paul's great argument. It is all of God and all of God's grace. It's by grace, through faith, that not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works that any man should boast for. The word for can mean because. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That word ordained means prepared. Today I want us to discover and realize what a wonderful privileged position Every true child of God is in their relationship to the Lord. And as I thought of this text of Scripture from last Sabbath evening, I thought of three things. I've never preached on it before, so this is the first time. There was three things come to mind. There's a declaration here about God's workmanship. Notice the words, for we are his workmanship. Now, we'll pause there. This, I believe, is a very positive, personal, powerful statement. The word workmanship means a thing of his making. Now, this is a remarkable, thrilling truth. Every true Christian has been made and fashioned by God. You think of any item made and fashioned by a designer from start to finish. So it's his idea, it's his desire, and then it's his design, and then the design comes to pass, and before you know it, you're looking at the finished article. See, God is the workman here when it comes to salvation. And God works entirely upon us on the basis of grace, and God is fully and always active in relation to that work. I want you to understand today that we do not make ourselves Christians. As I read this statement, for we are his workmanship, thinking about this declaration here, I thought that this is God's answer to two serious errors that have plagued the church of Jesus Christ for centuries. First of all, you've got the error of Roman Catholicism. 
Roman Catholicism teaches in order to gain enough merit for salvation, we must add more good works to what Christ did on the cross. What Christ did on the cross was not enough. It needs more. So it's a works-based salvation. It's a merit-based salvation that the Church of Rome holds to and teaches. That is, you keep adding more and more good works in the hope of attaining eternal life. But you can never say that you're saved. You can never know for sure that you have done the right works or done enough works to uh, merit God's salvation. You see, I believe that this is one of the biggest deceptions in the world today, that a man can save himself by the works of his hands, that, that by certain good works a man performs, that he merits or finds favor and acceptance with God. I want to put it to you this morning, that's the way of Cain. And the Bible says, woe unto them that have gone in the way of Cain. Over in Genesis chapter 4, we read in verse 5, But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. It says in the verse 4, And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. And over there in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by he being dead, yet speaketh. Think of Cain. He planted his crops. He reaped them. He then presented the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And I believe that he probably thought and felt that the Lord would accept his offering. He had thought about his hard work. It was a tremendous effort. I have no doubt it was a labor of love. I have no doubt that it was time-consuming. I think of the care and devotion that Cain went in to, to planting and reaping and presenting his offering. Yet the Bible tells us that God had not respect unto Cain's offering. God didn't recognize Cain's offering. God didn't accept Cain's offering. In fact, God rejected Cain's offering. And it's recorded in the book. And thousands upon thousands of men and women today are following in the way of Cain. They're doing exactly the same thing. They're doing the best they can. They're performing many good deeds at home school, church, and society. But in their mind, it's all about a merit balance. It's all about a works-based salvation. They think and feel good. They think and feel that their good deeds will somehow outweigh their bad deeds. And at the end, they'll be brought into a right relationship with God. But I want to tell you this morning, it's all futile. It's all fruitless. I want to add more. It'll end in failure. It'll end in tears. And to the thousands upon tens of thousands that believe in salvation by the works of their own hands, 
whether they're adherents to Roman Catholicism, whether they're members of the Jehovah Witness cult, whether they're members of the Mormon society, or whether they're involved in apostate Protestantism today, because apostate Protestantism believes in salvation by works. Could I ask this question if you're listening? Who decides when you've done enough good works? Who decides what a good work is? And what is not a good work? Could I ask also how can a good deed deal and outweigh a godless deed? How do you know that you've got the right amount of merit to attain salvation? What about your sin? You sin against the Lord in thought and word and deed. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, I want to tell you, this merit balance in your mind, this works-based salvation that you feel and think so much of, it's all a lie. It's a lie of the devil. It's been spawned in hell. And here's Paul reinforcing even when we were dead in sins that quickened us together with Christ, by grace he is saved. For by grace he is saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Underline verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. Why? For we are his workmanship. See, there's the declaration about God's workmanship. And I believe that this message should be preached in every city, every town, every village, and every hamlet, in every church. And may the Lord deal with apostate Protestantism. May he open the eyes of many adherents within Roman Catholicism. May he bring people in their hundreds and thousands out of the Jehovah Witness movement and, and the Mormon society because it's all a works-based salvation. And it's the way of Cain. And it's futile and fruitless, but it's going to end in failure and ruin and damnation. Could I... Speak about a second error now. You see, equally prominent, especially in evangelical fundamental circles, some of them here in Northern Ireland, and it's taught, and it's a serious error, it's a lie of the devil, also spawned in hell, that good works have no connection with God's salvation. In some circles, there's a teaching that's prominent that you can be saved through faith in Christ alone. Profess Christ as your Redeemer and Savior. But you don't need any evidence of good works. You don't need a life of good works following that profession of faith. You can profess to be saved, claim to be Christ, and be an adulterer, be an adulteress, live in gross sin. You could even be an alcoholic. You could even be atheistic and Certain things you could say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in him as creator and maker of the world. Or I believe in God, but I don't believe in the Bible as a book full of errors. Or I don't believe in Jesus Christ as God's son. But it's okay. I'll still be in heaven because I prayed a prayer. I've signed a card. I, I, I have walked an aisle. I have raised a hand in a meeting. I want to tell you this morning, if you're listening to me, listen carefully. It's, it's a lie of the devil. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. And all things have passed away and all things have become new. You see, many today, and I'm speaking to we Northern Ireland and beyond these shores, many inside the Christian church, even in evangelical fundamental reform circles, they do not understand the great doctrine of salvation. The Bible says, And you have they quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Ephesians 2 and 1, Ephesians 2 and 5, Even when we were dead in sins, it quickened us together with Christ. You see, God's salvation is a spiritual resurrection. It's about raising a dead sinner to newness of life. It's about being dead and then being made alive. And when you're alive, you've got signs of life. I want to say this morning from this pulpit, you cannot divorce true evangelical repentance from true faith in Christ. Where you have one, you have the other. And that true saving faith is more than just mental assent to propositional truths about the person and work of Christ. Now, now, mental assent to propositional truths is included, but that's not the true makeup of true saving faith. It's a component element, but it's only one of the elements. You cannot separate and divorce Christ from his saviorhood and his lordship. This idea that you can have Christ as your savior now, and 20 years from now, if you decide, if you like, you can make him your Lord. That's not the teaching of the Bible. C.T. Studd said, the English cricketer who was converted, who gave away his millions, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. See, Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Here's Paul. And he's expounding and expanding his great argument in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. And he's explaining something wonderful here. For we are his workmanship. There's a connection between 8 and 9 and 10. God's salvation is entirely all of God. It's all of God's grace. And what does it result in? It results in a life of good works. And these good works will never form the ground of our salvation. They are the evidence and the fruit of that salvation. You see, if salvation's all of God and all of grace, then the good works that follow is all of God and all of grace. And the Lord gets the glory. So here's the declaration of God's workmanship. For we are his workmanship. And if we understand that, we'll be delivered from these two serious errors. The error of a works-based, merit-balanced salvation. And the error that good works have no connection with God's salvation. Notice secondly here in the text a description of God's workmanship. Think of these words, for we his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. I want you to understand this morning 
that God's salvation is a personal work of God. For we are his. Underline the word his. It's very emphatic. You see, salvation has nothing to do with us. It's not something we do in ourselves. I asked the question, who can give the sinner life? Who can make a dead sinner live? Who can make a saint out of a sinner? Who is the source and the origin of life? And the answer is, this living and true God, this one who is all-powerful, and this one who's ever personal to work in our lives. How could a dead man contribute to his resurrection? How can a dead man come alive? He can't. Someone has to give him life. What can a dead man do? What can a dead man say? What can a dead man see? What can a dead man hear? The answer this morning is nothing. You see, we had nothing to do with our spiritual resurrection, our spiritual regeneration. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Our, our, our will was depraved. Our, our mind was darkened. Our affections were diseased. And God came by his Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel. And God spiritually raised us from the dead. You see, if God created the universe by the word of his power, and he did that, Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And how did he do it? Oh, well, he did it by the word of his power. He did it through the eternal word, his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to these words. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's a powerful statement. And John said in John chapter 1, speaking of Christ, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made by him. That is the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of man. You see, the word was co-eternal with the Father. He predates the beginning. He was co-equal with the Father. Another person's in view here. You've got the person of the Trinity. You've got his, his, his essential deity, co-eternal and co-equal and co-existing with the Father in the beginning. Now, if God created all things by the word of his power in the beginning, then God also created life in us by the word of his power. In other words, he's the sole origin and the source of spiritual life in the soul. The child of God cannot boast in himself. He refuses to boast in anything. He certainly doesn't boast before he was saved because he was a dead sinner who needed a spiritual resurrection. And he doesn't boast in anything in himself in that moment when he was infused in life 
because the life came upon him and was wrought within him. And he doesn't boast after he's been raised to newness of life. He doesn't take the credit for his salvation or his Christian life because he made no contribution, not to the work of original creation. He made no contribution to the work of the new creation. He's a personal work of God. We are his workmanship. But notice also it's a particular work of God. Think of this word, workmanship. It's used only one more time in the New Testament. And this is a word that's unique to the work of God in the soul. And it's used to describe a particular work. If you want the reference, and I'm sure you do, it's in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. It'll come up on the screen. Look at the words. Listen to them as I read them to you. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The words, the things that are made, is the same Greek word translated workmanship in Ephesians 2 verse 10. So the word workmanship has to do with the things that are made. I want you to think of a poem. You think of a, a poet who is the author of the poem. He composes the poem. He chooses the words in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. And God has made us just like a poet has made and constructs a poem. And when the poem is being read, then people can recognize who the author of the poem is because the, the, the poet has constructed the poem carefully. It consists of his words. He designed this poem, and this poem is for a specific purpose. And that's the thought here. We are Christians because God has made us. We didn't evolve into becoming a Christian. You can't grow into becoming a Christian. I remember a man years ago attending a church, a Bible-believing church. He started reading his Bible. He started living a good life. He got his hair cut. He bought a suit of clothes. He got a shirt and a tie, and he started coming to church. And he thought for six months, because he was attending church, reading the Bible, listening to the message, cleaned up his life, stopped cursing and smoking, that, that he could evolve into becoming a Christian. And then he discovered that he couldn't, that it's impossible to evolve into becoming a Christian. Why? Because it's God that makes us into Christians. Remember the Lord Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. Born from above, born through the work of the Holy Spirit, using the word of God and bringing about conviction that leads us to lay hold in Christ. It's God that creates the new man. Could I tell you also it's a powerful work? Think of the words, things that are made, his workmanship. You see, it's connected to something that's made to be used. God made the world to be inhabitable. First man, Adam, in the garden. And I was asking myself this week, who could change a drunkard? Who could change a wife beater? Who can change the adulterer, the blasphemer? 
Who, who can change the foul-tongued man? Who can change the thief? Who can take a man who's full of envy and pride and jealous and change that man and make that man into be a, a humble, loving individual? I want to tell you it's no program that can perfect that change. Only God can. The entire process is of God. It comes from God's eternal sovereign choice to save and to change a man. It comes via God's eternal power to do it. Just as we had nothing to do with the physical creation, we're not involved in its beauty and its design, so we haven't been involved in God's new spiritual creation. I want you to notice it comes to us via Jesus Christ. It says here in the text, created in Christ Jesus. Paul emphasized that in verse 6, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Verse 5, hath quickened us together with Christ. Verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And then we read again, created in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? This is Pauline language. Jesus Christ is the true source. Apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him, we are nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. It's, it's him by his power that resurrects us to new life. It's him that changes our natural bent. He takes away the hatred of him, the hiding from him, and makes us new creatures whereby we hate sin and, and love righteousness. It's a powerful work. Can I tell you something else? It's a practical work. Notice the words created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You see, genuine salvation will eventually and inevitably result in a life of good works. I know that many today argue that there's no connection between true saving faith and subsequent works that follows, but the Lord didn't save us to live a life of sin. The great C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, in a book entitled The All-Round Ministry, published by the Banner of Truth in page 310, he says this, and I don't often quote uh, other preachers, but I want to quote Spurgeon today. We have been clear upon the fact that good works are not the cause of our salvation. But let us be equally clear upon the truth that they are the necessary fruit of it. John Calvin said, Christ justifies no man whom he does not also sanctify. You see, we're not saved by good works, but we're saved unto good works. Look at the text. Here's a different proposition. It's not by, created in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say by good works. It says unto good works. And I believe this morning that good works are the evidence of God's salvation. If there's no change in your life, if there's no evidence of good works, then you have to question the reality of your spiritual resurrection or the fact that you've been born again of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says in verse 15 of chapter 7, look at the words. Listen to them as they appear in the screen. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. 
A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And over in the book of Titus, I read this in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess that they know God. How many today profess to know God? But listen to this. But in works they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. Those that argue there's no connection between true saving faith and subsequent works, they're telling you lies. And they're living a lie. And if we think again of uh, Titus, it says in chapter 2 and, and verse 11, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, what are these good works? Let me suggest to you what the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Volume 31 through Charles Spurgeon in one of his sermons suggested. He talked about the works of obedience to obey the commands of Scripture. You see, we can't pick and choose which Scripture to obey. We should have a high regard for the Word of God. The psalmist said, oh, how I love thy law. We must delight ourselves in the book. Remember the Lord Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we believe the Bible's an infallible, errant um, uh, book, that it's a God-breathed book, that, that, that it's a book that's clear and sufficient for our need. Then let's remember that Solomon said, every word of God is pure. We've got a pure word. We've got a powerful word. We've got a precious word. And the Lord Jesus said, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Now that's important that we understand that. There's works of obedience. And that will apply in many, many areas. There's also works of love. There'll be love to God. What's the first great in commandment? It's this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And that love to God will be seen because it will impact on our attitude to the scriptures, our attitude to the Savior, our attitude to the sanctuary, our attitude to the Sabbath, our, our attitude to sanctification, our attitude to the souls of men, our attitude to the saints, our attitude to society. There'll be love to our neighbor. The Bible tells us to do good to all men, but especially they who are the household of faith. The Bible tells us to, to speak the truth in love. There's also works of faith. Let's remember all that we do in life's journey, we must do in trust and reliance upon the Lord. The prayer of the psalmist is relevant. Lord, help thou me. Doesn't the Bible tell us in Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not in thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. You see, faith is not the decision of a moment. It's the principle of a whole life. The just shall live by his faith. And it's faith in the Lord. We, we, we trust in him. Don't put our trust in men. Don't put our trust in princes. We, we trust in the Lord. So there's works of obedience, works of love, works of faith. There's works of life. You see, as you live out your life, remember you live before the Lord. 
Remember, you're in his presence. Thou, God, seest me. We're dependent on him, for in him we move and live in a being. We're accountable to him for every thought and word and deed. Think about living out your life in school, young people, when you eventually get back in. Living out your life at work. Living out your life in the university. Living out your life, whether at home, or in the factory floor, or on the farm, or in the hospital, or in the office. Living out your life in society, whether you're sick or in health, whether you're in wealth or in poverty, you have the mindset. And the mindset is God is in the center. And, and you have a focus that's Godward every day. That's the works of life. And that's what Spurgeon's talking about. What are these works? Obedience, love, faith, and life. I want you to think this morning, not only of the description of God's workmanship, that it's personal and particular and powerful and practical, but I want you to think of the closing of the design of God's workmanship. If you go back to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, let's read together the latter part of the text. And what does it say there? For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Now here's an amazing truth. Think of the God's preparation for his people. God prepared and pre-planned these good works before he saved us. These works of obedience, love, faith, and life. That was his purpose. That was God's objective, or one of the reasons, that he saved us by his grace. He prepared these works beforehand. Sometimes you'll see in a television show, maybe the lady's baking a cake, or, or a man's making a dinner, some of these chefs, and they, they will tell you when they get to a certain stage, maybe it's ready for the oven, and rather than you waiting 30 or 40 minutes on it cooking, they'll say, here's one that I prepared beforehand. I want you to notice the word ordained. And that means prepared in advance, pre-planned. You see, God's sovereign plan didn't stop at our salvation. God just didn't save us and leave us alone to work out the Christian life. No, he had a purpose. He had an objective. Remember what we read in Ephesians 1 and 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, it includes a life of holiness. That's why we preach that sermon or those series of sermons on holiness. It's, it's a life of loving obedience unto the Lord. I can't say I love God if that love is not seen in what I do and how I behave. It's a life of faithful service. It's like Isaiah, here am I, Lord, send me. It's like Paul, Lord, what does I want me to do? This is important. God planned it all. My salvation and the works that follow and you know what? This is a practical outworking, for it means that we've nothing to boast of. 
I believe that the great doctrine of God's election is the great ground for true humility. I believe the doctrine of election is a humbling doctrine. I believe it should move us to feel that we owe a great debt to God. It's the real only ground of our assurance unto the Lord. It means that God is in control of our lives. God is active, not passive. You see, God is not just a great helper for us to achieve our goals. God is the helper, yes. But God's also the producer. He's the provider. He's the prompter. He's the enabler. He works in us his creative purpose. He indwells us by his Holy Spirit. We're born of the Spirit. We're indwelled. We can be filled by the Spirit. We can be gifted by the Spirit. We can be led by the Spirit. He instructs us by his word. He enables us by his strength or power. That's God's preparation for his people. That's the design of his workmanship. And notice as we finish, God's pathway for his people. It says in the text that we should walk in them. So I want to say lovingly this morning to all the saints of God, we have a responsibility and we have a duty to walk in these good works, these works of obedience and love and faith and life. And remember, it's God that works in us and through us. It says in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And this life of loving obedience, this life of holiness, this life of faithful service, this life of humble dependence on the Lord, this is a a, a lifelong process. And we're to walk in them. Conscious, deliberate walk with God. Let me finish with this thought. Notice the word we, for we are his workmanship which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. I was thinking of the word together. You see, this is not just something for the individual Christian. This is something to do with the whole of the church. This is a more corporate idea. It's not you living a life of independence by yourself, living as a self-made man or a self-made woman, never idolize self. Idolize the Savior. Get your eyes on him. But let's remember that as a Christian, you're members of his body. And each of us have a role and place to function within that body. And together we're to perform and work in cooperation with one another. We is a reference to Jew and Gentile. Um, I I, uh, didn't read the whole of the chapter for the sake of time. But... Paul is dealing here with the thought of Jews and Gentiles worshipping together without distinction. And of course, the church of Jesus Christ needs to learn to work together. We need to be one for all and all for one. And that's especially true in the life of the local church. We're not to work independently of each other. There's to be no mavericks there's to be no individual decision made that, that affects the life and witness of the church. We, we work interdependently in each other, that we should walk in them. It's the idea is working and walking together. Now let me ask in closing this morning, are you a new Christian in Christ? Have you been born again of the Spirit and washed in the blood? Can, can you talk about the day, the time you were placed into Christ? 
that you were made alive under God, that you repented of your sin and received Christ as Lord and Savior. Remember, you'll not make yourself a Christian. You'll not create yourself into a Christian. You'll be created in Christ Jesus. And could I ask if you're a new creature in Christ, then if you prayed, Lord, what will you have me to do? do? Do you feel this morning you've been dealt with by the Lord? Can, can you pray, Lord, show me what these works are? These works that you want me to do, these works of obedience and love and faith and life, help me to understand that, help me to live that out. And could you also pray this morning, Lord, help me in my local church. Help me to work together with other Christians so that, that, that I, I'm living a life of faithful service by loving and serving and helping my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm doing all that I can to ease their burden and to make their journey and passage easy. And I wouldn't do anything to hurt or harm them. And if I do, I'd repent of it and get right with God. And I'd have a spirit of humility because I have nothing to boast of. Because all that I have and all that I am, I am by the grace of God. I commend this message to you this morning. Discover the joy of God's workmanship. Think of this powerful declaration. Think of this description this morning. That's personal and particular and powerful and practical. And think of this design. God's preparation for his people. And God's pathway for his people. The Lord bless you today.